everyone, we're back. Uh, I feel like there's been so many pauses we have to take. We had the storm, the snowstorm, that was last week, right? Yeah, time was very quickly, but we're thankful to be back. Hopefully, we won't have any more hiatuses for the doctrine class, and we will look to finish this, uh, you know, this time of teaching before February rolls around. You know, start something new and look forward to different things in the upcoming years. So, um, you know, hopefully, again, people have been keeping up. If this is something that interests you, keeping up with the Facebook, the videos, and even the podcast, whatever it may be. Um, but we are going to finish up Doctrine of Christ today. And it's very fitting, of course, as we approach Christmas in just two days. Um, and I really hope as we even consider Christmas and the birth of Christ that we start to, like, you know, really incorporate the things that we're learning. Right? We, learned, we learned last two weeks ago about the humanity of Christ, his human nature, and how he is truly man, although he is also truly God, and, and all these things. So I hope, you know, it, it's not about, like, clicking and connecting you know, all the time, but just even bringing in different things we've learned. And I want to start off tonight just with this quote by Turretin. He's a much older Reformed theologian, and it's very simple, very beautiful. And he says, man alone could die for me, and God alone could vanquish death. And we talked about the hypostatic union. We're going to get into it a little bit more. I know we left off, and I I know a lot of times there's more questions than answers, and that's okay. I hope for everyone who's been tuning in, um, the point of this class is not to understand everything. Um, even as I go through the material, I realize I don't understand a lot. There's so much depth, especially when we're dealing with the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the Incarnation and so on and so forth. But I hope we can hear this, especially if you were in last, last, last week's class and you hear this and you can say amen and you understand what it's saying, right? That man alone could die for me, right? Goats and bulls, their blood does not atone because they are not human, right? Although there was Old Testament sacrifices, we we believe that only man can die for man because man must atone for the sins of man. So only man alone, man alone could die for me, but God alone could vanquish death. And that's why we talk about Christ as the God-man, right? Fully man, fully God, able to be our atoning sacrifice. So let's pray together and then we'll continue where we left off last time. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we finish up this unit. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for being able to gather in person, especially as 2020 comes to an end. Um, We we definitely feel uh, the the pain and the weight of this year and how difficult it's been, um, how much pain there's been in this world and even just in our own lives probably. Uh, And yet we're grateful for this church. We're grateful for this building, um, for the warmth of this room and for the uh, facilities and even just the ability to be able to stream this this, um, time of teaching and to be able to dive into the things of God. And Lord, we live in uh, a generation and a society that does not um, value truth and and most likely does not even believe in um, absolute truth. And yet we're able to be so countercultural. We're able to look into a book, a very old book, and learn very old truths and, and find our hope and our rest in these things. So we thank you for the Spirit's work in our lives. We pray that as we continue to learn about Christ just very briefly tonight, would you help us to understand these things, um, but not always just to understand and to grab the concept, but to believe these things, to believe upon Christ and to place our faith in Him more and more each day especially in light of Christmas coming up, we pray as we hear about these things that we would always remember what Christmas is really about, that it's never just about the birth, but it's, it leads into the death and the resurrection and the ascension of our Savior. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. Um, Holy Spirit, guide us, enlighten our minds, help us to hear and to understand and to believe. We thank you, we love you, and Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I know, especially when we learn the material, it's a lot. And then if we have this two-week gap, it's definitely a lot, or the one-week gap. So I do want to kind of start um, a little more back on where we were. And we, we finished with this primer. If you look at the end of point one, we finished with the primer on the hypostatic union. Um, again, that might be a term you've never heard before, but it's something you know, which is that Jesus is one person and that he is fully God and fully man. We talked about the the perfect union of the two distinct natures. And, you know, I've been getting some feedback from some people, you know, saying like, this is hard and stuff I've never heard. And that is, for me, mission accomplished, right? It's just even we're bringing back language and terminologies from used by Christians and believers and, and just 
faithful men and women of God from centuries past. And we're not reviving anything new, right? But we're bringing back what the church has always affirmed about God, about Christ, about the incarnation and so on and so forth. So I really hope as we're learning these things, don't be discouraged if it's like, I never knew that. Does that mean my faith? No, nothing like that, right? We're learning these things to enrich the faith that we already have, right? I know many of us have been in church for many years. And if these are new terms and new concepts or maybe clarifying some old concepts you know, that's a beautiful thing. So I want to encourage everyone to just keep pushing through and, and it's doctrine doesn't end with this class, right? Theology is something we're learning for the rest of our lives until we meet Christ in glory. So we talked about the hypostatic union, right? We, if you remember, we talked about Christ, that he is one person, right? This is Christ, that he is one person and that he is 100% man and he is also 100% God. And, you know, as I was even talking to my wife, she always gives me some good critique on the way home. Uh, sometimes it, it really helps me think to what we need to clarif clarify in the upcoming class. But something that she was pointing out was that there was a lot of distinction talk, right? I talked a lot about the distinction about Christ, that he is one person, and yet there are two distinct natures which constitute this one person. Now, I think when we talked about it last time, we started getting some questions like, oh, you know, Jesus in his, when he's on the earth, we see his human nature, right? He cries, he uh, falls asleep, right? He bleeds, we see his humanity, but people were asking, but where do we see his divinity, right? Neva actually asked a good question about the transfiguration, right? We know that scene in the gospels when Jesus is on the mountain and um, he starts emitting this radiant light and, and Peter and the disciples, some of the disciples, they're there, they see it. And that's, that's kind of the question. Where do we see Jesus' humanity and where do we see Jesus' divinity? Now, I want to clarify. There's too many questions even that flow from that one question. But I kind of want to clarify and I want to give a practical example um, to maybe kind of drill it home for us. So the, the doctrine we need to learn, right, is this very simply. And I don't want us to miss this. So I, I'm going to kind of harp on it just a little bit more, right? We believe... In, in our confessions, even as KPCQQPEM, and we also believe as Bible-believing Christians that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, that he is a part of the Godhead, right? One of the three persons. And we also believe that when he becomes man, that he is 100% man, that he has truly taken human nature unto himself. So everything that makes us human Jesus has identified with that and he has entered into that, right? Now, we did make a clarification. We are not talking about the human nature that man had in the garden, right? He's not entering into a perfect human nature, but he's entering into fallen human nature. So basically, whatever you and I experience as human beings, he has entered into that. He has entered into the fragility of our bodies, the weakness of our bodies, right? And, and also understanding for God to enter into human state, right? To enter into human nature and into become one of, you know, something he created, that in itself is just the most humble thing as we're gonna talk about this upcoming Christmas. So we believe that Jesus has fully taken the true human nature unto himself. So he is 100% man. And like we said in this quote, that is why Jesus can die for you. It's because he's not a goat or a sheep or an ox, right? And it's also because he's not a phantom. He's not just God who looks like a man, right? We talked about those things. We talked about, um, we talked about these things where we talked about Apollinarianism and Eutychianism. We talked about these different heresies, right? He's not just God who just took over a random human's body and he's just walking around. No, he is 100% man, which is why he can die for us. At the same time, he is also 100% divine, right? So he shares in the divine essence with the Father and the Spirit. And we need to hold these things. I know it, there's tension. Why is there tension? Because there's no other person in history who is 100% God and 100% man. That's why. And I know as we start to think about these things, it's going to be like, but where is Jesus human and where is he God? You know, when he's dying on the cross, is he more human or is he more divine? That's what we don't want to do. 
right? I want to warn against that. Let's not separate Jesus' humanity and his divinity in a way where it seems like we're talking about two different people. What we're saying biblically, and this is a mystery, like we've talked about a lot. This is something we can't really fully understand, but it's laid out for us in Scripture, and we want to respect it and honor it and submit to this belief that Jesus is two distinct natures, but they're united in such a way that he is one person, right? That's super important. We talked about the heresy of, it's, it's on there, right? Nestorianism, where they say Jesus is two persons. He is the man version of Jesus and the God version of Jesus. But we want to hold to this belief, okay? So very flat out, Jesus, one person, two natures. And remember we said he is not uh, 100% man plus 100% God equals 200% something else, right? We talked about that as well. Apollinarianism, we don't want to blend the two natures together, right? And we also don't want to create this new type of being. Rather, it's not 200%, but Jesus is 200%. We talked about that. He is 100% man, 100% God, and he is one person. Not 200% this like new fusion of like man and God together. He remains distinct in his natures, and yet <clears throat> we consider him to be one person. So there's that. Now I want to give us an example. Actually, um, Lynn, he brought up something in the, in the last doctrine class, and he brought up a question. And I do want to kind of address that as maybe an example that will help us understand. So we talked about how <clears throat> the distinction of the natures in Christ, we can apply certain things, right? So when we say Jesus died, right? Are we saying that the divine pre-existent eternal son of God died? No, because God can't die, right? But we are saying that Jesus's human flesh died, right? And again, we don't want to apply everything from his human nature to his divine nature. That's something we're, we're not going to get into too much, but I want to give an example. Lynn actually brought up the question, when Jesus is on the cross, okay, when Jesus is on the cross, maybe a question we can ask more simply is, who is dying? Who is dying when Jesus is on the cross? Is it Jesus' human nature only, but his divine nature is not dying? And, and I think one thing I want to point out is there, there, there starts to be these distinctions that we make for good reasons, because we say, oh, of course, the divine Son of God can't die. It's really Jesus' human nature that's dying. But when you do something like that, you start to, if you see what I'm saying, you start to divide Jesus into two persons. But we don't want to do that. We want to say Jesus died. And that's something where, I'm going to explain very briefly, something about the attributes of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, right? We would say that Jesus, right, as the divine Son of God, He is omnipresent, right? Jesus is everywhere. We talk about Jesus as the one who creates, right? Colossians 1. Jesus is omnipresent. The divine Son of God is omnipresent. And therefore, we can say Jesus is everywhere. But we don't want to apply that to His human nature because then you're saying Jesus is human nature, that as, as a human being, He is everywhere. And that is not true. Right? Jesus was walking in one location at a time. And actually a mistake that can be made is we say something about the person, Jesus, that he is everywhere, and then you mistakenly apply that to his divine and his human nature. And that's actually, I talked about it in the past, why there are some Christian traditions where they believe because of this that Jesus is present in the communion, right? And we see that in Catholicism. If you guys know in Catholicism, they believe when they eat the, the bread and the, the drink that they're literally consuming the flesh and the blood of Christ. That's what they believe. And in Lutheranism, in the Lutheran tradition, they also believe that Jesus is present in the elements of the communion. And I want you guys to see, where is that coming from? That's coming from their understanding of the divinity and the humanity of Christ. They say Jesus is everywhere, so therefore we can apply that to his divine and human nature. To that we will say no. We can actually 
in a very different way. We don't take the person of Jesus and then apply to the natures. We go with the nature first. So we say Jesus, in his human nature, Jesus, as a human being, died. And because Jesus' humanity and his divinity are perfectly united, we can say, yes, Jesus died. But we do not then apply that to the divine nature and say that the divine Son of God died. Does that make sense? We don't want to make that mistake. And, and kind of understanding this, how the attributes kind of work out, uh, the simple question is, why is this important? I'm sure this is very confusing, or it's like, what is the, who cares? Like, what's the point? And the point is that when you start applying things about Jesus, right, that are not correct, or you apply wrongly, then you get a Jesus that is not real, and a Jesus that is not from the scriptures. And actually, from this, from this I want to give the example of, of the cross, right? A, a big thing that we hear on the cross is that when Jesus is on the cross and he takes our sin, the Father turns his face away from the Son, right? Have we heard that before? Right? There's a song, right? How deep the Father's love for us, right? It says the Father turns his face away. And actually, I think that's something we should explore. Lynn asked the question, you know, does the Father cease to love Jesus on the cross? And actually, if you guys know, right, when, when Jesus is on the cross, he says a couple of things. He does speak to his Father. He says, Father, forgive them. Speaking about the Roman soldiers and those who are executing him. He also gives his spirit to his Father, right, into your hands, like, commit my spirit. But when Jesus cries out, about his abandonment on the cross, what does he say? He doesn't say, Father. He doesn't say, Abba, which is what he said in the garden. He says what? He says, my God, my God. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? He doesn't refer to him as his father, that he's referring to them, him as God. And when Jesus climbs Calvary and he's there standing before God, in a sense, it's not that that's no longer his father. But now this is El. This is God. So actually what we see on the cross, we shouldn't see it as like, oh, like the father is, um, you know, punishing his son in the human nature, but the divine nature is not being punished. We don't want to make those kind of strange distinctions. But actually something very simple is, is, and this is just my own take and, you know, my own, own interpretation. We don't want to say ever that the father could cease to love the son because then you break the Trinity and you can't break the Trinity, right? If, if the father were to hate the son at any point, you would lose the Godhead. That doesn't make any sense. And, and can I suggest this? When Jesus is on the cross, he is being the most faithful son in all of history. He's offering the greatest act of obedience to his father out of love for his father. How could the father hate his son in that moment? Right? So actually, it, what we're seeing on the cross is not an exchange between like the father and the son on the cross. And then again, this is where we start getting into issues of like, uh, is the father punishing the human flesh of Jesus, but then he's loving the divine Son of God, right? It, it, we have these weird things, but I think something very simple is that this is not so much the Son negotiating his sonship with the Father. This is Jesus working out salvation, right, for, for us, for his people. There's a theologian, uh, Fred Sanders, and he, he makes a really good point, and he says, what we're seeing here on the cross is not a revelation of the Trinity. We're not seeing something about the relationship between the Father and Son, but what we're seeing is the relationship between God and sinful man, and we're seeing what it requires for our atonement, right? He says this, he goes on to say, Jesus on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Of course, that is the incarnate son of God crying out, but he's not saying, why have you forsaken me as your son, as you are my father? But rather what we're seeing is we're seeing a sinful man, right, being forsaken, by a holy and righteous God. And, and Sanders closes out with this. Jesus, when Jesus cries out, you know, about being forsaken, he's not talking about broken trinities. He's not talking about these, these strange distinctions, right? He's actually working out our salvation. And he closes with this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
we recognize our own sinful cry and we know the answer that Jesus is forsaken for our salvation, right? So again, I'm, I'm sharing that because it's a, it's a really roundabout, and a, but a good example about how when we see the Son of God in redemption, in history, we shouldn't look at Jesus and say on the cross saying, oh, is that human or divine Jesus? We shouldn't do that. We should see Jesus as one person, right? And there are places, of course, where his human nature are displayed, right? When he gets tired, when he, um, you know, when he, he bleeds, when he's like um, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, of course, there are places where we see the divine nature. But again, I want to warn us against maybe distinguishing to the point where we try to ask like, okay, so on the cross, what's really going on? No, we see one person and he is not negotiating with, with his father saying, don't abandon me as your son. He's negotiating in a sense, he's working for our salvation as the one person. And he's the only one person who could do that, right? As the God man. So that was a lot. I know there's a lot and we, we literally just started, but I hope that kind of gives us an example. And although I'm sure I don't answer the questions fully, I do want to just give that warning and that, like, please heed that warning of, yes, there are two distinct natures in Jesus, but we want to always look at him as a single person. And we don't want to make that mistake of starting to ask every time we see Jesus in the Bible saying, oh, is that his humanity or is that his divinity? Although there are places where it becomes a little more pronounced, Right? We always want to maintain that the attributes that we see in his humanity, we attribute to the person. The attributes we see in his divinity, we attribute to the person, Jesus. And we don't want to make that mistake of saying, okay, then it applies to the other nature as well. So I know that probably creates more questions, but I hope you kind of see what I'm saying at least. And then we're going to move forward. If you have more questions, we can keep talking about it. It's no problem. But I do want to finish out our unit. So we're going to go to uh, question two, or not question two, point two. We talked about the person of Christ, who he is. And now we're going to finish up with the work of Christ. And then we're going to talk about the triumph of Christ. So if you, you should have it and follow along. The work of Christ. And now we're asking the question, what did Jesus do? And he did so much, <laughs> but we're going to kind of go over very briefly um, some of the really important points, especially how it lines up with the Old Testament. So if we start out the work of Christ, what did Jesus do? The first thing we see is that he saves us and he doesn't save us in a new independent way from the Old Testament. Right. We talked about the Bible, right, as one meta narrative. Right. We talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament, that they are one story. And in a sense, they climax at the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. Everything in the New Testament is bringing us back to Christ. And of course, with salvation, it is climax in the cross. And what we're seeing here, if you look, Jesus, the work that he does is that he saves us in this way where he fulfills the threefold office. Right? And if you look, it's the roles of Jesus in our salvation. So if you look at these three offices, what is it? The prophet, the priest, and the king. Now when you hear those terms, what do you think? You think Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, we have a lot of prophets, we have a lot of priests, and we have a lot of kings. Right? If, if you've been in church long enough, it should kind of bring some people to mind. King who? David. Right? Priests who? Moses, Levi, prophets who? Jeremiah, Nathan, all these, all these people, right? We, so we know that these offices are present in the Old Testament. But now what we are seeing, right, is that Jesus, in the way that he lives and dies, and even in the way that he rises and ascends, we see that Jesus is not doing some salvation project that's completely cut off from the Old and the New Testament, or especially from the Old Testament. He is actually fulfilling the work and the role and the office of the prophets and the priests and the king in the most perfect way. Right? Look at what these offices entail. The prophet does what? They proclaim God's word and they pronounce forgiveness and judgment on the people of God. The priest does what? The priest mediates between God and man by offering sacrifice to God. And lastly, the king does what? The king rules over God's people, fighting their battles and securing their peace. 
And if you know the Old Testament well enough and you even think about some of the prophets, priests, and kings, you'll start to understand that although they may have done good in their time, although they may have been faithful, they are just a shadow of a coming prophet, priest, and king who is greater. Right? Let's just think about any of them. You think about someone like Jonah. Right? We know Jonah. We watch VeggieTales. We know Jonah. Right? And we know that he is a runaway prophet, that he was unfaithful, that he didn't want to show mercy to people he considers his enemies. And you hear that story, and then you kind of feel what? You kind of feel this, this is God's guy. This is the, this is the kind of guy God is offering to his people. And then you feel this urge, you need a better prophet. You need someone who is willing to go even to his enemies and offering and extending mercy to them. And then we get Christ, right? Or we know the story of Jonah, that he sins and runs away. And he's on the boat with the sailors, the pagan sailors, and they're, they're fleeing to Tarshish, right? And then the storm comes. And then what does Jonah do? He throws himself off the boat and it appeases the wrath of God, right? And that should... Sound familiar? Even in that story, you should, you should hear echoes of Christ, who is the greater prophet, the greater Jonah, who was willing to sacrifice his own life for the wrath of God to be appeased and that the wrath wouldn't fall on other people. We start to hear these things, right? Think about the kings. Someone like King David, who was like the best king in all of Israelite history, and yet he was still imperfect, right? His sin with Bathsheba. But then we also, we, we talked about way before about how he goes into battle with Goliath. And he is a king who truly cares and fights for his people. He doesn't sit back, right, like King Saul. But he goes before his people. He fights for them and he wins victories for them. And of course, Christ being the true king, the greater David, he would do the same with sin and death, right? And then with the priests, right, the priests who would, they would have to present themselves as holy and blameless and go into the tabernacle and do all these sacrifices and all these rituals and they would mediate on behalf of the people. And of course, who is the, the greatest priest that we think of? Moses, right? When the people sin at the base of the mountain, they build the golden calf. Who goes up to the top of Mount Sinai and who advocates and mediates on behalf of the people saying, Lord, forgive your people. Who is the one who stands in between a holy, righteous God who is ready to pour out his wrath? And who stands between that God and his sinful people? The priest. And yet, even in that, we hear the echoes of, Mo of Jesus, right? The greater Moses, who would mediate on behalf of his people. Can I give you even another example? Think about when they're in Israelite history, right? In Israel, when there was no kings to lead, what did God provide for his people? Right? Do we know? Yeah, judges. The judges, right? When there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was in their right, in their own, right in their own eyes and the people of Israel were falling away, right? We know that story. Right after they entered the promised land and this whole generation, they did not know who God was. They did not know what God did for them in the Red Sea and out of Egypt. And then what did God do? He raised up judges. But what was the main problem about all those judges? Some of them were Righteous, you know, you, you know, like Samson, and you know, he, you know, he made his mistakes and things like that. But even in the judges, what was their greatest problem? They died. That was a problem with the judges, right? They would lead God's people, but then what? They would die. They would die, and then there would need to be another judge who comes. But even in that, we hear echoes of a king who will never die. A king who has permanence in his office, right? And that's the beautiful thing. The more you read the Old Testament, right? The more even you hear the story about Samson. And, you, every, you know, everyone hates on Samson, right? He fell for the girl. He got the hard eyes. He fell for the girl. He lost his power. So, and so on and so on. We, we hear those stories. But think about the way Samson died. Right? How did he die? He, he sat, in a sense, right? He pulled the, the pillars and he... He died, he killed himself in a sense, right? But in doing so, what, what else did he do? He defeated many Philistines. He defeated God's enemies. And that should ring a bell. Because someone else would come and through his death, he would destroy the enemies of God. 
Right? Even in these imperfect judges, imperfect prophets, kings, and priests, we start to hear the echoes and the whispers, and more importantly, it builds up a desire. We need a better king. We need a better judge, one who will not die. We need a better priest, one who can truly offer perfect sacrifice. We need a better prophet, one who can come and bring the word of God and denounce judgment and pronounce mercy, all these things. And what we see is that when Christ comes, he fulfills all three. And that is the crazy thing, that he fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king. He does all three. And again, we just talked about this before. Let me ask you this. Jonah was a prophet, but was he a priest? No. Was he a king? Definitely not. We also have someone like King David. Was he a king? Yes. Was he a priest? No. Was he a prophet? No. And that's something we see in the Old Testament. Very rarely do people fulfill more than one office. Actually, one of the, the biggest anomalies in the Bible is this king that appears once in the Old Testament, and he's mentioned once in the New Testament. His name is Melchizedek. Have you heard of Melchizedek? And actually, Melchizedek is very strange. He's not strange. I'm not, no, you know, it's, he's, he's definitely unique, and he's an anomaly in the Bible because even the word, his name, Melchizedek, right? He's actually a priest, and he's a king, right? The name Melech, Melchizedek, is king of righteousness, but he is also a priest, and he is the one person, I would say besides Moses, in the Old Testament where he fulfills more than one office. And even in that, again, that's showing us someone better is coming. And for the Old Testament people, it puts an urge in their hearts saying, we need someone better. Someone with, who will not die. Someone who will pronounce you know, pure judgment. Someone who will mediate for us, so on and so forth. So that's what we see in Christ, that he fulfills all of the shadows of the Old Testament. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you know that. Right? He, he brings substance to all the shadows. And that's why I hope this can kind of elevate if you've been in church your whole life and you, know, you just know the answer. Oh, Jesus died for my sins. But then once you really see the Old Testament and you see the connections, you see it's so much more beautiful than that. And you start to even identify, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites who finally found restoration in these judges and then these judges would pass away and they would be so afraid and, and they would fall into sin and they would have that yearning. We need someone who will not die. We need a king to rule over our land. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these offices. He is our prophet. He is the priest and he is the king. All of these things find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as we go to that next point, we see that he does so. How does Jesus do his work? He does it through obedience. You know, actually the essence of Jesus' salvific work, his work of saving us, is what? It's obedience. That's what it is. That's the essence of how he saves. He saves us through obeying God. Look at this quote here. John Calvin says, From the moment he put on the person of a servant, Jesus began to pay the price of liberation for our redemption. Which means what? Which means Christmas morning, right? I know we may, and we're going to talk about this. You know, I'm going to preach about it on, on this upcoming Friday. We're going to talk about Christmas morning, the holidays, and we love the cheer. We love the nativity scene, the baby Jesus. From the moment Jesus wraps himself in flesh, he is already working. The work has already become, and what is that work? It is paying the price of liberation for you and I to be redeemed from sin. And I hope, again, we make these connections from the doctrine of man. When you hear the word obedience tied to Jesus, it should, it should make you think about someone else, which is who? I know we know. When you hear, when you even see, and we're going to talk about that actually this up, upcoming Friday for Christmas, we're going to talk about Jesus' obedience. But anytime you hear, especially someone like Paul, talk about Jesus being obedient, it should always bring someone to mind. And who is that? Adam, right? We talked about Jesus as the second Adam. 
And every time we see something about Jesus being obedient, it should always remind us about where we came from, right? About the first Adam, who's also the son of God, about how he was disobedient. And it should remind us, this is how Jesus will save. Not anything apart from what we learned in the Old Testament. He's not going to save us from it. Apart from the covenant of works, he's going to save us the way it was always meant to be done, which is through obedience and righteous faithfulness to God. And this is the question, how does Jesus save, right? He doesn't just save us like up in the heavens, right? It's not like Jesus like goes to war, like sword fighting Satan and then he defeats him and then we're redeemed. No, Jesus saves us through obeying God's law to the T, right? No jot or tittle will fade from this law, but he has come not to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. Read with me here. We see Jesus' whole life was an act of obedience, And we're going to talk about two different types of obedience. We can distinguish the two. If you guys are noticing a common trend when we talk about theology, we talk about distinctions, right? But we don't want to blend things together. We can distinguish the two, but we can never separate them from each other. Jesus' active and passive obedience are not two different periods of his work, but two different aspects of Jesus' work. Now, just even looking at the words active and passive, what are we talking about? When we talk about um, actions or like verbs, what is an active verb and what is a passive verb? Do we know? How good is our grammar, our English grammar? Levy? (laughs) He's shaking his head. Active is something we do, right? Active is something you do and passive is when something is done to you, right? Very simply. Right? Passive is more of a reflexive, something that's done to you, and active is something you do. Right? It's like jumping is an active verb. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus saves us. His work is one whole act of obedience, but we can distinguish between two types of obedience, his active and his passive obedience. But like I say, they're not two different periods of his work, but just in a sense, two sides of the same coin. So if you look, active obedience is when Jesus obeys the entire law of God in every respect. So active obedience is Jesus keeping and fulfilling the law, right? By loving his neighbor, by you know, keeping the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, all these different things. So active obedience is when Jesus keeps the positive requirements of the law. Now, passive obedience is when Jesus, not, it's not him acting anymore or doing something, but now it's, it's when he takes something upon himself. So Jesus suffers the penalties and the punishment deserved by the sins of his people. Okay, and this is something uh, we, we really want to make clear. When we see like Jesus, you know, like loving people and caring for the the, the children and the orphans and the widows. And in in Jesus' life, we see his active obedience. He keeps every law, every precept. He is completely holy without sin. So that's Jesus' active obedience. And then in his passive obedience, we see that now he takes upon the negative consequences of God's law upon himself. Even though it's not him that's earning it, right? Jesus never sinned. But now we're starting to see that there are two different things. And and just to give us a little more context, I talked about this briefly, but where do we see this even more in the Bible? We see it in the Old Testament, right? And we talked about the Levitical system of offering and sacrifices, right? And when you think about sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's two necessary things or two necessary groups of people, which is what? Not even groups of people, but you need the priests because they're the ones who give the sacrifice. And then what you need, what else? You need the sacrifices. You need animals. And do you see here, what did it take for the people of God to be forgiven in the Old Testament? It took the law of God to be fulfilled and any punishments that are owed to be received. And if you look, the priests are the one who offer active obedience. The priests had to wear certain garments. They had to wash themselves. They had to, you know, do all these things. And that should also be something we hear. The priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were unclean too. 
That was the only way they could offer sacrifice for other people. But we have a better priest who does not need to offer sacrifice for himself because he is pure, right? But the priest had to actively obey, keeping the law, obeying all of the Levitical traditions and all the garments and all those things. They had to be perfectly pure in order to offer this pleasing sacrifice to God. But they're not the ones who receive the punishment that the people deserve. They put that instead on who? The animals. And we know Leviticus 16. I know we love Yom Kippur, not because it's the Day of Atonement, but because we get some days off, especially if you go to like Baruch or some schools in the city, you get mad days off. But we think about Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and what do we see there? We see this whole act of obedience. We see the priests offering this act of obedience, keeping the requirements of the law, and then we see them putting their hands on both of the goats, and the goats will be the one who take the punishment that the Israelites deserve, and then they are cast away, never to be seen again. And that is, an, that is basically signifying that God is casting the sins away, never to be remembered again. And even in this Levitical system, we see the foundation Active, passive obedience. But in Christ, what do we get? He does it all. He keeps the law. He keeps every jot and tittle, every iota. He keeps every positive aspect of the law. And yet, he is the one who takes the negative conditions of the law upon himself. He's not just like the, the priest of the Old Testament, doing everything right and then saying, okay, God, now put it on them. No, but he takes that. He suffers that upon himself. If you look at this quote, it says, the cross of Jesus, the cross of Jesus is simultaneously the ultimate suffering that Christ endured and the greatest act of obedience that he performed. And the reason why I'm saying, we don't want to say that Jesus' active obedience is like before the cross, but then once the Romans get a hold of him and he's just kind of taking it and not saying anything, then it's passive obedience. He's kind of letting it happen. We don't want to say that. It's not two different periods of his obedience, but it's two different aspects. Because if you think about the cross, what is it? It is the greatest act of passive obedience. He is receiving. He is letting it be done to him. He is taking the negative punishment, the negative weight of all the law conditions upon himself. And yet he is doing that what? He is doing it actively, right? It's not like Jesus on the cross just like saying, okay, you got me, I can't do anything. Right? Think about John chapter 10. Jesus says, I lay my own life down and I take it back up again. Jesus is not just some helpless dude once they get a hold of him on the cross. No, every moment that Jesus walks to the cross, every time he chooses not to open his mouth, Right? Isaiah 53, like a, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Every time he does not choose to fight back, every time when he's on the cross and he's being berated by the criminal and he's also being berated by the, the Pharisees saying, son, who, if you're the son of God, then save yourself. Every single time that he doesn't choose to obliterate those people, he is actively obeying. And yet he is passively receiving the punishment that we deserve. And that's why I don't want to say that active is one time and passive is the cross and on. Because on the cross, it is simultaneously his passive and his active obedience. He's offering the perfect obedience. He's offering the perfect sacrifice to God, which will atone for you and I. And I hope we continue to see everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this. But of course, we never knew that it would come in this form. And it is, this is what we rejoice in, in this Christmas. Yes, of course, the birth of Christ. But all of that was for what? Was for this, for his obedience. Because the obedience is what saves us. We talked about that. Right? We are saved by works. They're just not our own. And we need to hold to that. Because when we do, it really makes us helpless. We say we can't save ourselves. It's not like Jesus could do this and we could do this and we like partner with Jesus, high five, let's save humanity together. No, he does it all. He fulfills it all 
in his obedience. And this is the way that we receive our redemption. And now let's close with this, right? We talk about the cross, we talk about Jesus' death, and now we're going to close out with the triumph of Christ. We're going to talk about the resurrection, the ascension, and of course, in this season, we're going to talk about Advent, Jesus' second coming. So now, we talked about this, Jesus offering his obedience, this perfect act of obedience, and on the cross, Jesus says what? So famous, I feel like many people have the tattoo in Greek, right? He says, Tetelestai, it is finished. But let me ask you guys this, what is finished? He says, it is finished. But that's something I've been thinking about recently. What is finished? Is the work of salvation finished? Because then he doesn't need to rise from the dead. What is finished? That's, that's a good question we should ask. And I want to make this point that the triumph of Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is what we're talking about here in the doctrine of Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ does not stop with the cross. And a lot of times for Christians, our gospel can be very one-dimensional. I don't even want to say one-dimensional, very uh, shallow. And that's kind of hard to say because the cross is not shallow at all. The cross is the victory and the triumph of Christ. Yes, it is. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and all these different things. But if we talk about Jesus' life and his death, and we don't talk about his resurrection, and we don't talk about his ascension, then I will say this, your gospel is very small. It is very small. The gospel is Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is the whole story. It is what he has come to do. And we talked about Jesus' life, we talked about his death, and now we're going to talk about now the triumph of Christ. We talked about the work of Christ in his obedience, and now we're going to talk about the triumph of Christ in his resurrection and his ascension and his return. What do we see in the resurrection? We see that Jesus is raised with a body. Very important, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, it says Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection harvest. What does that mean? It means that Jesus being raised with a body sheds important light on your future. It means when you are raised from the dead, you will also be raised with a body. It may not be the same kind of body that the glorified Christ has, but you will be raised with a body, right? Maybe it's because I played like, like Warcraft and stuff when I was a kid, but they have these like wisp characters. It's just like a face, like cloudy. And I was like, when I go to heaven, I'm going to be like a nice little wisp, like a little wisp action. But that's not true. We're going to have bodies in heaven. When we're with Christ in glory, we will have bodies. And the proof of that is that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection harvest. 1 Corinthians 15. Which means there is a harvest coming and Jesus is the first one to be harvested. He's raised with a body. We're going to be raised with a body. It says Jesus was not a phantom. Right? When they saw Jesus, when Mary and Martha, they saw Jesus, when Peter saw Jesus from the tomb and the disciples see Jesus, he's not like... God, and then now he just has some like non-corporeal body. No, he's raised with a body. We know, of course, the famous story of Thomas, doubting Christ, you know, put your hands in, in, where, the, where the nails were, and then he also eats the fish, very important, right? Doesn't just go straight through him or anything like that. But more importantly, when we talk about the resurrection, we need to understand that it has theological significance. And I want to ask you that question. What did the resurrection do for you? Let me ask you that. Just think about it. What did the resurrection of Christ do for you? Let's just ponder that. Think about that. I'm sure we've talked about, and if you've been in church long enough, you've, you, you say, of course Jesus was raised. You know, of course he was. Or else he would be a liar, because he said he was going to be raised. So on and so forth. But what does the resurrection of Christ do for believers? And this is something where we need to talk about the resurrection more in church. Because the resurrection is so integral and key to our salvation. In Romans 4, 24b to 25, Paul is speaking and he says this. In verse 24, he says, Jesus our Lord, who, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And what does justification mean? Justification is a forensic term. It's a legal term. It's something used in court. It's when you declare someone to be righteous. And what Paul is saying is that when Jesus was raised, there was justification. 
Maybe you've heard the word justification before. That means when you're declared as righteous. Maybe you thought that you were justified when Jesus died. And you know what? That wouldn't be a a bad assumption. That sounds pretty good, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he pays for your sins, and you would think, then I am righteous. We also hear about the exchange between the sin and and the righteousness of, of Christ and giving him our sin, and we're taking his righteousness, so on and so forth. But if you, Paul is saying this, that he was delivered up, he was crucified for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. And Paul's simply saying that we are justified in the resurrection of Christ. Not in the cross, not in the death. So when Jesus says it is finished, he's not saying the work of salvation is done. That's not what he's saying. But he has finished his work. He has finished his work of offering this worthy sacrifice to his Father. And it is only when Jesus is raised, that is when God vindicates Christ. That is when the proof is there, in the pudding, that Jesus is a righteous man. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to the Jews and he says that this is true, that God raised Christ up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And what Peter is saying is that you can't think about the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ. That's impossible because it's not possible for Christ to stay dead because the death and grave only have hold over those who are not righteous. But you see, when Jesus was raised, in a sense, I've heard examples like this, that was God, um, like a receipt. That was God's receipt saying that the work Christ has offered up on behalf of you and I, that God has accepted it. It has gone through. All of our accounts of sin have been cleared out. God has closed, Jesus has closed our accounts by his atoning work on the cross. And now when Jesus is raised, that is God vindicating Christ, saying, this is my son. He has completed his work. He has pleased me with his obedience. And now he will reign and he he will take his place as the messianic king, as the son of David. And that's what we're seeing in the resurrection. And what we're seeing in the, in the justification, it's, there's justification for Christ, and then it's for us. Look, at, Read with me. For Jesus. First, if Jesus remained dead, then it would prove that he was also sinful and unfit to be the Savior of God's people. In a sense, the resurrection is God's declaration that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice as payment for our sins. The resurrection is proof that everything Jesus said about himself was true, that he truly was God's only Son. So what we're seeing in the resurrection is first, Christ is justified. He is vindicated, declared righteous by the Father. And then now, if we are united to Christ, if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, we are also declared righteous in Him. The acceptance that Jesus receives was on our behalf. We are declared righteous because Jesus alone is righteous and we are united to Him. So the resurrection is paramount. It is so important. It is, you cannot take it out of the gospel message. Without the resurrection, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, then it would show that Jesus was not fit to be our Savior. We would still be stuck in our sins. Everything Jesus said was a lie, so on and so forth. Paul gives many reasons in that chapter. But the fact that Jesus was raised, that is the Father justifying His Son, vindicating Him as the righteous sacrifice, as the Son of God who offers perfect obedience. And now in our union with Him, we are justified. So the resurrection is very, very important. We need to understand that. And lastly, as we close out, we see here that we go to Jesus' ascension. Right? In his glorified body, we know the story. Jesus did not remain on earth. He ascends to heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. And we see in, on earth, Jesus completes his work. He finishes it all. But now in heaven, Jesus' work continues in unceasing intercession for his children. Right? If you guys know Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about Jesus, that he finished his work, he offered purification for our sins, and now he sits at the right hand of God. For a priest, they only sit once, only when they finish their work. And Jesus has now finished his work and he ascends to be at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus does not stop working. Jesus is not just sitting in heaven waiting for us to get there. Jesus is working right now. 
And he doesn't work in the same way he worked on the earth. No, he works in his heavenly ministry, which is what? Praying for you and I. Praying for you and I. McCain says that. He says that if, if I heard prayer warriors, if I heard a hundred people praying for me in the next room, especially if you come from the Korean tradition, you have like a prayer warrior mom or grandma or whatever, whoever it is, you hear them praying for you in the next room, it would give you so much faith. Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, the King who will never die, is praying for you by name night and day. And that should give us confidence as we live in this world. He is praying for us. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And you see in the book of Hebrews, it's so important. The book of Hebrews is such a, a beautiful book because it talks about Jesus and His ministry and it highlights in Hebrews 12, 1 and Hebrews 8, it highlights what is the apex of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It is when He ascends to be with the Father again. And when He ascends, He ascends what? As our high priest. That's what the priest does. They mediate for the people of God. He prays for them. And that's what Jesus has done. He has now ascended to the place where we will go. And I think especially the ascension is something we don't talk a lot about in the church. But the ascension is so important, especially in 2020. If you felt so bogged down by this world, if you feel so like a pilgrim, like an exile, like this world is not your home, if you feel disenfranchised as a person, like you know that you don't belong here, and not just because there's people around you who annoy you, But genuinely, you look at the evil and the strife of this world and you say, I do not belong here. This is the wilderness. The good news is that the priest who represents you, he has overcome the wilderness and he has ascended to the place where you need to go as your forerunner. Hebrews chapter 4. You guys know that quote by Jesus, where your treasure is. What? There your heart will be. And the book of Hebrews tells us something similar. Where your high priest is, there also will you be. If Jesus is in heaven, then you will be in heaven. And that is our hope. Even as Christians, even if our possessions are taken away, even if we lose everything, you can't lose everything because your everything is in heaven. He's already there, He's gone ahead. And he's shown us that the wilderness of this fallen world, it can be traversed. It can be overcome. And as we are in him, found in him, as he mediates for us, we will also overcome this wilderness. And that should give us hope. And the book of Hebrews talks so much about things that are better. A better covenant. A better hope. Better sacrifices, better possession, better homeland, better resurrection, better provision. He talks about the blood that speaks a better word. And do you know what makes the new covenant better? And what makes Jesus better? It's not that Moses was bad or evil. First Corinthians talks about that. But relative to Jesus, yes, Moses is not much. Right? To the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of, Mo- the priesthood of Moses was amazing. Moses, I would say, in the Old Testament is the the greatest type of Christ that we see. But compared to the magnitude of Christ and the new covenant, it's not good. And what is it about Christ and his new ministry, his new covenant, his new hope, his new homeland? What is it about Christ that is better? It is the permanence. It is what we talked about. It's the fact that everything lasts That's the beauty of our hope in Christ, that everything we find in Him, it will not fade. It is this very reason that everything that Christ has given us and done for us and promises for us, it will abide. When you reach your heavenly homeland, that homeland will abide for all eternity. There won't be another fall. There won't be anything that comes between that fellowship. And that's why as as believers, we look to Heavenly things, right? Colossians 3.1, we look to the things above, to heavenly hope and heavenly reality. Which is why even now as the church, as Christians, 
if things are taken from you, if possessions are taken from you, if you're disenfranchised in regards to all the things in this world, all the glories. Even earlier I was talking to Deacon Levy about, you know, money and wealth and how oftentimes for me I look at those things and I would say, man, that would be nice. But compared to the heavenly realities, like we said even in the Ecclesiastes sermon series, the things in Christ, the things from Christ, the things through Christ, for Christ will abide. And that is our hope. And lastly, we hope in the return, in the second advent of Christ. Christ is coming back. He is. Right? I think it was Augustine who said that Christ, he endured death like a lamb. And he devoured death like a lion. He has overcome death and sin. And our hope is that Christ is returning, that he will come to take us home, to be where he is. The ascension is already showing us that when Christ returns, where are we going to go? To some purgatory? To deal with the sins we committed? To make up for lost time? No, no. When Christ returns, we will be with him in glory. John 14, 3, of course, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That's where I, where I am. You may be also. Right before, in John 14, 2, Jesus says, My Father's house has many rooms. And now while we are still here on this earth, I think it's John MacArthur who says very well, Jesus has prepared a place for us. But now he is preparing us for that place. That is why we are here in this wilderness of fallen humanity. That is why we have not just gone to be with Christ immediately like that. Because even now he is preparing us to live in that fullness of satisfaction in heaven. And also through us, through the church, he is bringing many people to him. And that is our hope, ultimately. So as we close out this unit, you know, we talked a lot, of course, about Jesus, about who he is, and the two natures and all these things. But I hope that you, this, I hope this is what you take away. Jesus' life, Jesus' death. Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. Because what do all these things have in common? It's this, Jesus lived for you. And he died for you. And he was raised for you. And he ascended for you. Our salvation is complete and it is this beautiful picture, not only just theologically, but even linked to the Old Testament. We're starting to see all these things and they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So especially in this Christmas season, as we contemplate Christ, don't just start, stop there. A lot of times what we do. Jesus is born. Merry, Merry Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. We love it. We stop. We're, we're right here. We're like, we love this. Merry Christmas. But I want us to always push and see that all of this was for all of this. That the Christmas we celebrate, of course we adore, we love it, but all of that was for all of this. It was so that Jesus could be the God-man. We talked about that. Right? What Jesus does not assume, he cannot heal. And because he has assumed our humanity upon himself, he is able to heal us in his life, death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And I pray that this gives us hope, that this is not just knowledge. I know a lot of times we just learn a lot of things, we're confused, and we had to hash things out. That will come by the Spirit's work over the many years we follow Christ. But I hope even as we finish up this unit, we start to see Jesus in the fullness of who he is. And where are we now? We're here. I want to encourage us even tonight as we go home and we go into our next day tomorrow, the ascended Christ is working for you. Even right now, he is praying for you. You might feel like, oh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not good with my faith. I feel so far from God. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, if God is ready to let me go. You know why that won't happen? Because Christ is alive and he is praying for you right now. He's praying for you by name, night and day. So let's find our hope. Yes, let's find our hope in this work in the work of Christ and what he has done. But let's know, let's remember the work is not over, that even now he has ascended, he is praying for us, interceding for us, mediating for us with a better blood and better covenant. And he is the better savior, the better priest, the better prophet, the better king, and all of these things. 
Amen. Do we have any questions? We'll take questions and we'll finish up. Uh, again, as I was thinking about how we're going to do this, I kind of wanted to skip over what we went over last time. It was a lot. I know it's confusing. And I know we talked about new things even today. But I hope this has kind of tied up the unit nicely. Again, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out anytime throughout the week, even if they come up. We'll take questions here. Questions here. There's only three of us. Questions here? I'll give it a nice seven seconds. The teacher rule. Questions, questions. On any of the material, even from the last unit we did. Nope, okay. Deacon Levy, do you have anything? Nope. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm relieved or worried. <laughs> That's good. Again, if you have any questions or thinking about these things, um, even, you know, I of course, want to encourage everyone to come out to our Christmas service this Friday. And we're going to contemplate these things. And my prayer is really that, especially even when you come on Christmas, I hope you, you hear those things and then you start thinking about the things we just talked about. That they start creating this beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So with that, we'll close out this unit. Again, any questions, please feel free to reach out. Email me, richardhanacupram.org, and we'll get to answering those questions. Let's pray together. We'll close out our time. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for um, giving us your word, which gives us you know, the, the gospel, which makes us wise into salvation, but also it has so much more than just that. That it's not just about getting our foot in the door and getting our access and ticket into heaven. But Lord, it's about knowing this person, knowing Jesus Christ. That eternal life is knowing God, truly. And in Christ, we have come to know you. And we pray that as we continue to learn, even as we have just two more units remaining for our adoption class, probably just four weeks left, we pray that you would help us to not feel discouraged if we don't understand everything, but feel encouraged that we want to learn that that is a sure sign that we have tasted and seen that you are good, that we want more, that we want to know more. And we pray as always that it may, it may not just make us smarter and more knowledgeable, but God, that you would help us to believe and that this would humble us, that this truth of who Christ is and what he has come to do for sinners like us, knowing our sin, knowing the cost, knowing what it would cost him in his life and his death. We pray that this would humble us, God, that it would bring us to our knees, that we would fall in worship and adoration of this king who had equality with God to be grasped, but he has given it up, surrendered it for us, so that we may be near to the Father once again, and we may be brought into this fellowship. So we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for this class and even this season of learning. We know it's not always like this, but we thank you for these seasons where we can really study and delight and, and search your word. May it continue to search us, sanctify us in your truth. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And Jesus, let me pray. Amen. <laughs>